So when you talk about including ways of knowing or ways of teaching that is still in oral form, people say, mm, how do we do that? How can we do that? It's, it's a question of sitting still and asking yourself, how did our four parents teach their children before the notion of books came to be? Welcome to Curated Conversations, a podcast discussing real-world issues of equity, diversity, inclusion, and belonging. I'm your host, Shaliza Jamal, founder of Curated Leadership, an organization that fosters partnerships with individuals and companies to develop their knowledge in the areas of equity and diversity to build inclusive communities. I'm joined by two amazing guests today, uh, Dr. Artavan Izidarad and Dr. Joki Wan, who are both from University of Toronto, where I experienced them. Uh, Dr. Artavan is now an assistant professor in the Faculty of Education at Wilfrid Laurier University. He is also a community activist and executive director of a nonprofit organization called Youth Association for Academics, Athletics, and Character Education in the Jane and Finch community in Toronto. He was an educator with the Toronto District School Board and a member of the Race and Identity-Based Data Collection Community Advisory Panel with the Toronto Police Service. Dr. Izidarad is the author of Decolonizing Educational Assessment, the Ontario Elementary Students and the EQAO 2019, and co-editor of Equity as Praxis in Early Childhood Education and Care in 2021 as well as counter narratives of pain and suffering as critical pedagogy, disrupting oppression in educational contexts. And most recently with Dr. Wan, the power of oral culture and education, theorizing proverbs, idioms, and folklore tales. Also enacting anti-racism and activist pedagogies and teacher education, Canadian Perspectives, which is a forthcoming book in 2023 alongside uh, Dr. Zora Abawi and Dr. Andrew Campbell. As well, another one that's coming out for you to look forward to is the International Handbook of Anti-Discriminatory Education that is co-edited with Dr. Peter Chafanis. Dr. Izidarad is also the founder and director of EDI-cation or Education Consulting, offering equity, diversity, and inclusion training to organizations. His research interests include equity, standardized testing, oral culture, community engagement, youth violence prevention and intervention, anti-oppressive practices, critical pedagogy, social justice education, resistance and decolonization. Dr. Joki Wan is a professor at the University of Toronto and currently serves as chair in the Department of Social Justice Education at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education, OISE. Dr. Wan is an accomplished educator and educational leader dedicated to recognizing equity as a central dimension of good teaching. She has served as special advisor on status of women issues, contributing to research and policy development concerning the intersectionality of gender with race, disability, sexual orientation, and Aboriginal status, and the impact of these issues on the lived experiences of women, faculty, staff, and students at the University of Toronto. She also served as director 
for the Center for Integrative Anti-Racism Studies, SARS, at Boise. An award-winning professor recognized for her contributions to teaching, Dr. Wan has been nominated for TVO Best Lecturer and has received the African Women Achievement Award in 20, 2007, the Harry Jerome Professional Excellence Award in 2008, the David E. Hunt Award for Excellence in Graduate Education at Boise in 2016, the President of Toronto Teaching Award in 2017 and 2018, she was the recipient of the African Scholars Award which is a recognition given to faculty, students, alumni, and community leaders by the African Alumni Association at U of T. Professor Wan is a recognized scholar in the areas of Black feminism in Canada and Africa, African Indigenous knowledges, anti-colonial and decolonizing education, and African women and spirituality. Well, I am so excited to sit down with both of you today, uh, having worked with you both as a student, as a collaborator. Uh, Dr. Wan happens to me be my PhD supervisor, which I'm so grateful for. And today I want to sit down with the both of you to talk about your recent collaboration, which is the book titled The Power of Oral Culture in Education, Theorizing Proverbs, Idioms, and Folklore Tales. So I'd like to put the question out to both of you. What motivated you to put this collection together? And what is the significance of it? Uh, thank you for having us. Uh, this project was in the works for about two years. Um, you know, I think um, being so busy, juggling so many things and wanting to get it right. Um, we had a lot of conversations. Um, it was an idea that came to me and having known Joki from my time at OISE and being a master's and a PhD student, um, we always wanted to collaborate on uh, on a topic that we were both very passionate about and it was just a personal thing. Um, so I had approached Joki to come on board, um, which, you know, the oral culture um, reflects so much of the amazing work um, Joki has done. Uh, in the field and in the larger literature on decolonization, uh, indigeneity, um, Afrocentricity. So we kind of co-collaborated from there around what is the vision of it. Um, and we wanted to make sure we bring together folks who were established, but also early career scholars, you know, community-oriented practitioners. Um, and so we kind of um, very intentionally approached folks uh, such as yourself, Shaliza, who has a chapter in the book, and many others, uh, to contribute to it. And we thought, you know, um, you know, oral culture is often seen as an add-on when it comes to education. We wanted to provide that counter-narrative as a collective body of work um, that connects with folks intergenerationally and across boundaries. Um, how do we um, present it in a way that is also digestible to community. It's not a book for academics, it's a book for everybody, um, including parents, students, elders. And that's why a key component of it is activities or lesson plans um, that folks can use. Um, so you don't just kind of read it theoretically, you read it and say, how do I bring this to life in a daily conversation with others? Thank you, Shurisa, for inviting us to have this very important conversation. And thank you, Adivan, for your persistence and your calling me. Jockey, we need to get this book out. Jockey, we need to do this. Thank you so much for that. Because as we got the news that the book is out, I said, wow, 
one of the reasons why we decided to put this book out was to document, to document and to acknowledge and recognize an aspect of indigeneity that has been neglected, that has been pushed to the margin. And I couldn't thank Advan more than, you know, what, I, I mean, I don't know, I don't even know what to say to him because he managed to push me to take action to ensure that that aspect of our teaching is actually documented and becomes part of the mainstream. And I can expand a little bit more on what I mean by mainstream when we talk about the use of what we have done in this book. Thank you, Joki. You know, what's really interesting, um, as you as you get ready to expand and share more, um, you know, Artavan, you mentioned I have a chapter or, or a publication, a piece in the book, and I found it so difficult to actually think of something because I had all these thoughts in my mind. Oh, you know, is it going to be valid? These are stories that were passed through my culture, or my tradition, or we have teachings that come from our elder, but we're socialized to think of these uh, stories or these oral traditions um, as myth or as, you know, an aside that we don't see them as fact. Oftentimes we're taught in school to really focus on the canons. And as such, we forget about our oral traditions or we put them to the side. And so I think that is a really powerful message that you have uh, by putting together this collection of oral traditions. And Joki, to that point, I, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about how has oral culture impacted your own life, your own career trajectory and the work you do around um, Afrocentricity and indigeneity and perspectives on education? When we talk about oral culture, it's interesting because we think it's something out there. Yet, it's something that we do on a daily basis. It's a conversation. It's a conversation that dominates, that regulates, and that becomes a part and parcel of who we are. However, because of colonization, we decided that this oral culture, the word oral, is not as valid as uh, when you go into a classroom, when uh, you, you know, when you have a teacher in front of you. What you don't realize is that even within the classroom setting, we are actually doing oral conversations. We are doing orality, but we, 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 we sort of try to push it out of, um, out of our minds. So when you bring it close home, close to what we do on a daily basis, it's, it's something we have, it's something that has been part and parcel of who we are. It's, it, it's something that um, translates into our indigeneity. It's something that translates into our emotions. It's something that translates into where we want to go, into our vision into our um, dreams and calling it orality is just trying to show that it had been pushed 
out of the margin. It has been pushed out of the center and we have recreated a center on the margin that we are saying orality is actually not on the margin, it's at the center because it, it's, we do it we do it on a daily basis. We want to privilege that voice. We want to privilege that paradigm of saying that orality is not something foreign, it's something that governs our lives, is something that on our waking up, on our sleeping. Yeah, I appreciate that framing because it's much like this podcast, right? This conversation that we're having, this part of orality and sharing our stories and the work we're doing and the teachings. And for me, especially during the pandemic, I really leaned into podcasts and I'm really listening for lessons or advice or even leadership advice uh, and thinking about what folks had to share about their trajectory and, and advice there. And I'm wondering, Joki, if you can share an example of an oral tradition, whether it's an idiom or a proverb or a folklore uh, that helped you uh, throughout your life, whether it was a difficult situation or helped you find purpose or just a teaching that guides you through your life, if you would share one with us. There are a couple of um, proverbs or wise sayings that are part of me and I cannot I cannot go into a classroom or I cannot like now I cannot enter a conversation without having that particular proverb or proverbs with me and one of those proverbs is a Gambian proverb that says if your only two is a hammer you will see every problem as a nail. And what that particular proverb tells me is that don't think there is one solution to solving a problem. Don't think we can solve the educational problems that we have by bringing orality into the classroom. Don't think you can solve any educational challenges we have if we all start telling our stories, we have to do it using a multiple entry point, multiple, you know, like layers of how to solve a problem. Because when we do that, then there is no competition because one of those, one of those solutions we bring to the table will address the problem. Hence this very, very important proverb if you're only two is a hammer, you see every problem as a nail. The second one that is very closely related to that uh, proverb is, if you're building a house and the nail breaks, do you stop building or do you change the nail? Again, this addresses the book we have written. We have written a book. If let's say we send it out to the schools and uh, people come back and say, but this, is, this has no relevance at all to the educational system that we have. Do we stop advertising it? Do we stop saying, oh, wow, we spent so much time putting this together. Now no one wants it. No, if you're building a house and a nail breaks, you cannot stop building that house. You have to keep on insisting. 
you have to keep on looking for glue, looking for this to put the house together. That's another proverb that I sort of walk with on a Thank daily you. Basis. I appreciate that. And I appreciate you again highlighting this idea that we have to move away from this colonial idea of canons and what is accepted because oral tradition is how we got to this place we are today, right? Um, before we could write out books, uh, before we had curriculum that was in place. So I really appreciate that. So Artivet, I'm wondering if you can uh, tell us a bit about the foreword of the book that discusses the limitations of oral culture and orality as an invitation to ongoing commitments, to criticality, community, relationality, and justice. Perhaps, how have you seen this play out? Uh, so I think the kind of um, little background around the vision of the book is um, when, you know, me and Joki were talking about writing the first chapter and the introduction to set the stage, um, we kind of talked about some of the things we struggled with or see as extraordinary practices within academia in our role as researchers, but also trying to be activists. And so I think we agree that research is a form of activism. And anytime we put together a body of work, we also want it to become a medium to challenge some of those inequities. And how can that work become decolonial and challenging the norms that serve as gatekeeping practices? And we really talked about how citational practices from referencing, how much you have to reference, it has become colonial in many ways of becoming a tool to dismiss others. So for example, if someone writes something and you know they don't follow APA correct citations or they don't have citations, it becomes a way to say that's not legitimate within this arena of academia. So on purpose and being subversive, um, you'll notice um, our intro chapter has no citations. Um, it, um, it is all about orality. Uh, we bring it back to the curriculum of life because curriculum is not only things that kind of are within the pages. It's a, and I mean, I'm going to thank Dr. John Portelli to bring me to this concept of the curriculum of life is important. I think when it comes to the colonial indigenization, um, the relationship piece becomes so important, right? Equity is relationship building. It's knowing what are the local needs, what are the needs of people. And so when we provided somewhat of a guideline for the chapters, um, we made sure people kind of talk about who they are, that positionality, that intersectional piece was so important because people have to understand where the authors, where the activists are writing from, what is the significance of those proverbs, idiom and folklore stories to them, but then how others can make their own meanings from those stories. And that's the beauty of oral culture, that it transcends time, it transcends boundaries. And you have the same story uh, kind of told from different vantage points across cultures. Uh, when we look at uh, many, common, um, many common sayings shared in English, but also when you translate to the local language or different language, it can have more intricacies and nuances. Um, so I think um, that was really the vision behind the book and uh, the introduction was kind of, I always caution to use the word revitalize, but because it, it almost says like it didn't have meaning, so it did. But I think it's a way of maybe recentering, as Joki has mentioned, reprioritizing. But I think for us, really legitimizing it and being able to bring it into spaces that often might exclude oral culture 
looking at it from a colonial lens of what is curriculum, what is not, uh, what is suitable to talk about. So I think it was a way of being a counter narrative, but as a way of uh, trying to dismantle and provide some tools um, to have those conversations around the importance of orality and oral Thank you. Culture. I'm glad you gave that framing. That's really helpful. And I feel like, you know, research is a form of activism and that in itself, that that opening is an act of anti-oppression and really removing those power imbalances that you said, you know, occur when we're, you know, forced to cite something where there may not be a citation. And I wonder if you have any thoughts of how we can become more inclusive of those histories and cultures of orality who have been or continue to be silenced. And in particular, I'm thinking about even the deaf and hard of hearing communities, uh, as well as certain cultures and traditions. Maybe before we, we talk about how do we ensure that, you know, those communities that have been silenced are included uh, and that their stories are part of the curriculum are part of the, 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 the educational system and so on and so forth, is to, to think of it in terms of how difficult it is, even for us educators, who have been steeped in colonial logic, who believe that everything that is valid, that is uh, legitimate, is found in a book. So when you talk about including ways of knowing or ways of teaching that is still in oral form, people say, mm, how do we do that? How can we do that? It's, it's a question of sitting still and asking yourself, how did our four parents teach their children before the notion of books came to be? How did they ensure that their lessons that were given to them around a fire were actually digested and they got feedback and they were able to evaluate that what they taught their children got to be and got implemented. And so when we are talking about inclusiveness, it's the more we talk about it, the more we, we indicate that you don't need a textbook to open and start reading to the children, to start reading to your class, that you can do everything from here because that's a gift that the creator has given us and that has been passed down generation after generation. But it has been censored. It has been curtailed. It, can, it has been regulated. It has been um, controlled because people have to have the apparatus of controlling others for purposes of power. So when you have everything in a book you are powerful because you can you control what goes into that book and what is left out it is up to us it is our responsibility as educators that we start saying 
No, there are different ways of passing on messages. There are different ways of teaching our children. We don't have to always use a textbook. Yeah, and I think if I could jump on and add some points, I think um, to Doki's point, right? Schooling and education are not always synonymous, right? Um, you can be educated outside of the walls of a classroom. When we think about social economic status, we look at um, equity deserving identities. Um, there's often barriers to get to those places of schooling, um, such as higher education, right? But there's many folks who become successful through uh, learnings from elders, from knowledge keepers, uh, from fam you know, their family members, from strangers. And so I think that's where the international scope and vitality of oral culture comes in. I think um, what we try to do with some of the big ideas, um, you know, the sub-themes in the book kind of ground us in what are some of the key pieces. Uh, the four sections in the book uh, are identity, uh, culture, uh, power, and community. And I think it kind of goes from micro to macro, and that's very important. And to give you an example, I think a lot of times when it comes to kind of social justice, arguments are brought up around this binary of right or wrong. But if you really ask people from different lived experience and perspectives, each side can justify what is their right and what is their wrong, right? So I try and shift the conversation to kind of um, the power and the community in relation to identity and culture. So kind of the positionality piece comes in is, you know, your view of right is embedded maybe in your values and cultures, and maybe you don't consider the other perspective, right? So I think um, it's a bit of messy work. You know, I always say equity work is messy, and I think this is where the chapters push the readers um, to think from different positions, to think from different cultures, but also find that common ground where they can advocate how oral culture is important, how it can be used as a tool to educate and have uncomfortable conversations and have brave conversations and have conversations that push the status quo and say, here's a gap and we need to challenge it. So storytelling itself, I think, as a body of work uh, becomes a tool for activism, right? Whether it's a podcast or whether it's in a book or whether it's in a conversation. For me, dinner conversations with my parents and great-grandparents they were critical times, right? And it was their way of kind of trying to educate me or even discipline me uh, in a way um, that um, was bigger than that one action. It was kind of learning from your mistakes. You know, who's your character? What are your values, right? And so I think where those conversations happen are just as important as just the conversations happening. It's where are they happening? Uh, it's not always in schools, right? Uh, sometimes it's in vulnerable circumstances. And, and so I think storytelling, once again, is a key part uh, from even owning your own story. Sometimes you got to forget about something. Sometimes you got to tell it in a way that is empowering and authentic. And that takes maturity and growth and mentorship to get to that stage. And so um, all of this is part of, once again, legitimizing oral culture, um, both as a tool and a medium Thank you. I appreciate that. And I'm, I'm thinking about also this idea that as educators in different spaces, there's a lot of unlearning that needs to be done. 
and also reminded of the power of storytelling and counter storytelling that is so important, especially for our indigenous, black and racialized students who are getting one message. And as you said, Joki, that censored colonial message in schooling where the uh, you know major tenant of critical race theory is storytelling and counter storytelling for a reason, because we have to share our traditions and the teachings that are not from the mainstream, right? That allow us to share our positionality and our identity that is very much collective and rooted in community. So I really appreciate that. I wonder if I can come back to this question and see if uh, we have any thoughts around what it would look like to honor orality for the deaf and hard of hearing communities. And if either of you have any ideas of what that might look like. Yeah, for me, I think it's always providing the tools for those with the lived experiences to express their own needs, uh, right? So for me, who's not part of the deaf or hard hearing community, I can't speak for them, but I could speak about the processes in place that you know, my role I can advocate for, for those authentic voices to be able to talk about their lived experiences, to talk about what is possible innovative solution, because we know when it comes to the norm, it hasn't historically worked for equity deserving identities. And so I think it becomes being cognizant of where folks need to be an ally, uh, where they need to be there in solidarity, whether they're an co-conspirator, uh, stepping back, recognizing if I don't have the lived experience, it's important for those voices to lead the way and to support. Um, and so I think, once again, it's how do you build relationships? And I think orality and storytelling becomes a point of finding those commonalities and mediums for solidarity to then move together to challenge systems and structures and their policies and practices um, that serve as gatekeeping mechanisms, that's safe to perpetuate oppression, um, to try to kind of dismantle the institution and rebuild it with uh, those needs prioritized and at the center, because we know when it comes to schooling and even higher education, unfortunately, profits and savings uh, drive the way. And then comes the community needs. Where it needs to I'm be also thinking about, you know, prioritizing sign language. I'm seeing more and more sign language. Of course, there was a very popular sign language interpreter at Rihanna's performance at the Super Bowl. I'm seeing it more and more with my clients. And I'm thinking about bringing sign language into it. But I'm also thinking about my world of the arts as an arts educator and thinking about movement and theater as a way to sort of bring folks into nonverbal orality and this idea that we can connect through movement because that is also something for me that has been colonized, that has been um, stepped on, that has been um, squashed and discontinued, um, sometimes in violent ways, right? This idea of movement and body work and connecting to one another um, through those different mediums. So, um, you know, that's what I would offer as an arts educator that I think the arts also have a, a power to bring nonverbal communication of these oral traditions. I'd love to ask uh, either of you if you can share maybe some challenges that might have, uh, you know, come up while you were putting together this work and, uh, you know, how you sort of address that. There were a lot of challenges. And in particular, I'll, I'll talk from um, especially the, the, the chapter 
the chapter that I co-wrote with the two other people. Number one, the two of them could not see the relevance of, you know, collecting proverbs, idioms, to use them in, in the classroom. What is this? Again, you can actually see the invisible colonial logic regulating how they think or how they thought about how what form should you know knowledge be passed on and then the other challenge you know um advan as a, as an educator as a, a classroom teacher and um and a very practical person said you know in addition to 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 the proverbs you have to come up with a lesson plan and everybody said what lesson plan one of them said i've never been to a teacher's college what's a lesson plan so you can you can see out of those challenges the three of us were able to come together and using the expertise of myself and the other person who is a trained teacher, we are able to craft the, the, the lesson plans. We are able to, to convince ourselves that, that this is not different from when you have a history class or when you have um, a religious class and you're putting together a lesson plan or you're putting together your notes for teaching and 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 i said Let, let's go back let's go back to when we are growing up uh, as uh, advan said let's go back to when you are growing up and let's start our conversation based on what our parents will constantly repeat on a daily basis and that's where we started and then they started say oh my goodness this is interesting Wow, I never thought of this. I never thought of that. Can you imagine how rich this will be in the classroom? And 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 can you imagine how this form of um, teaching is going to evoke the curiosity of the, the the students in our classes? They want to go to their parents and ask them, "Do you have anything to share with us in terms of?" proverbs in, in terms of idioms and so on and, and so forth, or in terms of stories, because many times we'll be told stories, will not be told, uh, you need to go to the river, go and fetch the water and come back home. You'll be told, you know, long time ago, there was this little child would be given a gourd to go and look for water, you know? So, so the curiosity and how the gourd is going to be carried and how the, you know, the child is going to put water in the gourd and so on and so forth makes, you know, makes it very, very interesting. So there were challenges, but in the end, there were good challenges. Yeah, and if I can say, you know, putting together a book is always challenging uh, due to so many ongoing things, but I think publication processes for me are they're always extraordinary. Uh, even though I am good at publishing, I think what I do is I always try to challenge it uh, because uh, you need to push from the outside as well as the inside to kind of dismantle a system. 
And so I think books are always um, very obsessed with standardization. Doing equity work and decolonial work uh, means we want to go away from standardization to see what are the specific needs and then how do we create a framework to work with that. So I think as Joki said, uh, you know, many people, um, perhaps not teachers, but I told them you are all educators, right? Uh, given the roles and that goes back to kind of provided the template, but I kept reiterating, uh, don't come to me as the expert because you as the storyteller, um, you own that story and, and its significance um, and in relation to who you are and your own lived experiences and your professional experiences. I can support you. And don't look for me to say what is right and wrong. I can support you to kind of fit the framework and the vision uh, with the book. And so I think one of the challenges for myself was kind of picking one or two proverbs or folklore story or idioms to work with because I started with a list and then I kind of had to pick one uh, and it is challenging and then kind of taking a deep dive. Uh, it's easy to kind of list many and give you a superficial dive. I think goal and the challenge was how do we take this deep dive into it and then bring it to now, bringing it um, through discussions and the connections we make to turn issues. How can people see themselves in the story? And I think that's the vision for the activity plans um, and the lesson plans were is how do you make this curriculum of orality uh, relevant to people's lives where they can see themselves in it and they can apply it to their local context in their own communities and based on their intersectional aspects of who they are? Uh, and so the last piece I would just say is, and I'm very mindful of this in any type of work I do, is what is the range of diversity of identities as well as locations um, that, the, that the collective body is coming from? So we are very intentional to have representation uh, for folks all around the world. Predominantly are living in Canada now uh, because we wanted to see how um, these stories transcend time and boundaries and are able to be passed on intergenerationally uh, from elders to now through these mediums such as podcasts and books. And so those were some of the challenges, but I think it was also a beauty of it. You know, with any book project, I think that the journey is just as beautiful as the final product, although many people see the final product, uh, being able to facilitate uh, for many people their first publication or their first book chapter. Uh, many people are still doing their PhD. And so I think uh, for me, those are the small wins that maybe people don't know, but uh, those are just as important as the final Thank product. you. I appreciate that because I'm already imagining like some work that I've done around youth participatory action research. And I'm thinking of what you said, Jokey, of, you know, young people reading these oral traditions and then going out and having to interview people from their community or their elders and learning. And, uh, you know, you mentioned this a little bit, Artavan, but for, for either of you, whether in higher education or public education, how do you see the power of oral culture evolving in the future as a tool for anti-racism, for liberation, anti-colonialism, and to promote diversity, equity, and inclusion in education uh, across from K to 12 and post-secondary? I can give an example. Last weekend, um, I just arrived from uh, Thailand Saturday morning, and I had to give a talk in terms of uh, gender violence 
you know, for International Women's Day or something like that. And the first, when I when I got home, the first thing they said, urgent, send us your notes, send us the, the PowerPoint. And I told them I don't have any PowerPoint. And they said, at least send us something. I said, I don't have anything. Because I wanted to test myself how I can tell the story without notes, how I can organize my thinking the way I used to see my dad or my parents organize their thinking without having to write down one point, two points, three points. And I'll, I'll say that I was very impressed with, uh, with Njoki because out of nowhere, I had my points figured out and they all connected. And within my 20 minutes, I was able to deliver, I, I think what I thought, I, 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 usually I don't praise myself, what I considered a very powerful keynote. And all that I said is, you know, when we are talking about gendered violence, think of two you know, two, two groups, we are all victims. And then there is the victimizer. I don't think of a victimizer as a person. Think of the victimizers as institutions, as historical events, and so on and so forth. And then think of now that we are in it together, how do we prevent it? So it becomes something that we all have to work together. And I told it in form of a story. And later on, uh, at the end of the evening, somebody said, Joki, could you come back and summarize what you said? Because again, I had committed it here. Within a minute, I was able to summarize it. So we can, we can revive that form of teaching. We can revive using orality where we don't have to depend on written notes. And we can indicate this is how we were before we got so messed up by colonization. How oh, powerful. Thanks for sharing. Um, and I would just add, let's come at it from two different angles. I think in one way, orality is a, fame, is a way of uh, finding spaces for healing and for spirituality. Um, I think for me, when I'm working on a project, conversations with the folks I have who are not just my colleagues, but my friends, um, becomes a source of revitalizing my own soul to do this work. Um, it makes the work enjoyable. Um, and it's not um, kind of doing it for the sake of work, right? There's a purpose to it. From another angle, I think it's a way of challenging those um, colonial practices that have become the norm and until we can make something abnormal and poke holes in it we cannot really change it at an institutional level so for example quantitative knowledge is still considered more superior it's just qualitative knowledge and storytelling right so in my classes um, as an educator is i try to get away from the long essay at the end of the class of a 12-week course because that doesn't reflect everybody's learning style and it doesn't create opportunities always for them to make those connections. So I want to encourage folks to be, not be knowledge consumers, but knowledge producers. 
and retelling story, retelling your own life, it becomes a way for you to value your lived experiences as a form of curriculum, not just reading the works of others. An example is this. I always say, let scholars make up their own words. So just because you're in Microsoft Word and the red thing comes underneath, doesn't mean you need to change that word, right? Um, so this is a part of kind of empowering folks to challenge the norm. And all your life, you're told you need to conform in order to get an opportunity you need to conform to be successful. And I think as a collective, the healing and the mobilization and finding like-minded people allows kind of for that solidarity work. Um, it allows for the relationship building. It allows you to sometimes take losses, but regroup and say, how do we go at it again? And, you know, there were times where we could have dropped the ball on this book um, due to this feeling of strains from so many different responsibilities. But I think the conversations and pushing each other was part of recognizing we needed to do this book as a way of making this. Yeah, and I really appreciate what you said about this knowledge exchange because you know, uh, Paulo Freire's written about it, right, in Pedagogy of the Oppressed. And we've talked about this idea of critical consciousness, but it's also somewhere up to us who have that sphere of influence as educators, for example, in your class, to break down those uh, stereotypes of what it looks like, or Jokey, what you said about having to have a PowerPoint and notes and over-prepare and just speaking from your heart and your mind. I think those are really key points here about moving away from this idea of expert into a knowledge exchange and a knowledge community um, and knowledge, um, you know, transfer, because that's really what it is. And then we've got this other piece of that colonialism that tells us we need to have this citation, and this publication. And I think it's really, really important to remind our listeners and remind the readers of the book um, that they should use that lens as they are engaging in the content as well. Now, Joki, you mentioned uh, some of the challenges, including getting folks who maybe were not educators to think about lesson plans or activity plans. And I'm wondering if either of you have advice for educators who want to incorporate these lessons and insights from the book into their classroom. Well, I think for me, I would say the book is meant to be a point of um, departure. It's not a destination. It's meant for folks to give ideas of reflecting their own life, uh, finding where oral culture impact them, what proverbs, folklore stories or idioms, where life lessons that formulated their values, and then being able to kind of tell that story uh, in a way that is authentic to who they are and their culture and aspects of identity and community that challenge them or they're still grappling with. So it's it's meant to be an empowering tool. Of course, um, you can take some of the some of those proverbs and idioms and folklore tales that folks have written about and use those activities. Once again, I would encourage you, uh, don't be a, a just a knowledge consumer, take that and become a knowledge producer by adding a layer of your own authenticity and of your own story to it. And having those conversations, right? This other piece is the implementation part of how do you have a tough conversation with your child? Um, if you have a coach in the community leading a club, how do you use a proverb to motivate your team for a big game or to help someone overcome an identity uh, issue they may be having? Um, and so I think, once again, think tools, how can morality be used as a medium to achieve something? And I think if everybody does that, it contributes to legitimizing it and it contributes to kind of 
creating that institutional turnover effect of seeing orality in a way that is valuable, that is important and legitimate. The book should not be the end. It should be an entry point to writing your own story if you don't find yourself in the book. If you don't find, uh, for instance, Proverbs, uh, let's say, um, that represent your community, that should energize you to start looking into the Proverbs in the stories that translate into teachings from your own positionality, from your own standpoint. Absolutely. And on that note, I know you shared some of your favorite proverbs uh, that you use and guide you, but is there a favorite one or something that really stood out for you as you were uh, putting the collection together from one of the themes? Uh, and then maybe I'll ask Ardavan after, but Joki, was there one that stood out for you from one of the contributors? One of the proverbs, and I think I've used it over and over and over again, is no matter how long the night, don't wake up. It might look as if it's impossible to use orality instead of depending on books. In our teachings, in our classrooms, it might look impossible for us not, you know, for us to, to come and actually teach with the stories long time ago and let people try to make sense of the story in connection to the lesson of the day, that day will come. So no matter how long, no matter how many challenges orality is facing, that oral culture, that oral way of teaching will be very central to our teaching, very central to Artiman, our learning. did you have a specific contribution, idiom, folklore that stood out for you from one of the contributors in the book? Yeah, for me, um, I mean, I learned a lot also hearing other folklore stories from other parts of the world. So for me, it was really insightful. Um, I want to thank everybody who contributed to the book. Uh, but for me, I got a love for poetry and uh, uh, Dr. Suda Oladi's uh, chapter on, on Rumi's story of the parrot and the merchant um, really uh, hit home because she she went really deep in deconstructing that and uh, being of Iranian background and herself as well. I think there was a lot of personal connections and also bringing back a lot of memories for me. But also, I'm going to just throw out some other uh, proverbs that really, I would say, uh, connect with me. Um, and I won't deconstruct them, but uh, when people always ask me, how are you so productive? Tell them early bird gets the worm. Uh, and so uh, that's a very common one folks have across uh, cultures. And the one that always my dad told me was that you can't lift two watermelons with one hand. And I think it always uh, spoke to me about um, having a vision and uh, trying to commit to something and finishing something before um, we try to do too many things. And I think the last one I'll leave with is the boy who cried wolf. <laughs> the story, I think so many people connect with that and there's so many versions of it, but it was so crucial around growing up and uh, you know, thinking about the importance of being honest and one of the harmful things of lying and crying wolf in a, in a sense. And so I think I'll leave with those. 
if you want to access all the other great things, you know, you got to purchase the book and uh, have those important conversations. Absolutely. I'm going to ask you about all of that. And, and my next question is really about that. Can you share some of the key takeaways that re- readers will gain from the book? Um, maybe if they're not familiar with the significance of oral culture, and then I want to ask you about where they can get it. So what are some key takeaways that readers will uh, get from the book, Ardavan? Okay, so before I say that, I just want to do a quick shout out to a couple of folks who endorsed the book. Um, as you know, publication is a community, and we can't do it without others supporting us. So I got to give a big shout out to Dr. Vidya Shah at York University, who wrote a beautiful uh, foreword who talked about her own experiences and connections to orality. So big gratitude to that. And then all the folks who endorsed the book, um, you know, Dr. Malefia Sante, uh, really an academic OG at Temple University, um, Dr. Carl James at York University, Dr. Wada Ibrahim at University of Ottawa, and uh, Aaron Murray, uh, who's the system superintendent with the Toronto District School Board. So a big thanks to all the folks who endorsed and reviewed the book, uh, some on short notice, so really appreciate it. And then the big takeaways, uh, and to your question, um, really, um, I will share the website where folks can purchase the book. It really um, outlines this at the front. You know, it's a way of exploring the power of oral culture and in the process centering uh, indigeneity and non-hegemonic, non-dominant approaches in education the dominant discourse that is often presented. Um, the beauty of it, as we talked about, it has such a range of contributors from equity-deserving identities, uh, representing oral culture from different positionalities, communities, and countries. Uh, so you will learn things that you haven't been exposed before. And then that pedagogical, the how-to teaching tools for educators, practitioners, students, and parents, which allows you to kind of extend the learning into your own local context based on who you are um, and what you do. I'll pass it on to Doki. Adivan, you have said it all. You are, let me tell you, I would love to do another book with you because you, you, you just summarized it in the proverbs that you gave to us, you know, in terms of being focused, in terms of uh, determination, and uh, I cannot say anything more. Thank you, thank you, thank you for being such a great collaborator and for pushing, you know, Jockey, we need to get this book out. Jockey, we need to get this book out. Jockey, we need to get this book out. So thank you, thank you. Thank you for that. The early bird gets the worm, right, Ardavan? So that's a that's a good one that you live by. So where can listeners get this book and learn more about both of your work? Uh, let us know. We will be putting it in the show notes, but if you have anything to shout out for listeners, uh, please do so. I think um, we'll post uh, we'll post the, the book link um, through our uh, the Springer Publisher, Palgrave McMillan Publisher website. Um, this is actually our official book launch. So thank you, Shaliza, uh, for honoring us for having us on your podcast. Um, um, and, uh, and because it's our book launch, we will share a poster that is active for about four weeks where you get 20% off if you decide to purchase it. If you're a librarian at a school, we'd love for you to purchase it for your institution. Uh, for me, you can connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, 
have heart advantage Zatarat um, from my Twitter um, at Dr. Zatarat. Um, and uh, you can always email me as well if you just Google my name and use my institutional email, Zatarat at WLU.ca. Um, Jokey, where can we find you? You can find me at uh, njoki.wane at utoronto.ca or njokinatheni at gmail.com or my LinkedIn. You can do that. Or my Facebook. Perfect. I'll link all of those. Thank you both for joining me for the launch and for inviting me to be a contributor as well in the book, The Power of Oral Culture and Education, Theorizing Proverbs, Idioms, and Folklore Tales. Really, really grateful that you both sat down with me today. Uh, I'm a big fan of both of your work and continue to be working in community with you both. Thank you for tuning in to Curated Conversations podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, rate, and review the podcast. Subscribe and listen to past episodes at www.curated-leadership.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. To learn more about Curated Leadership, visit us on Instagram at Curated Leadership.